If I got a recording budget, I just go to Sizzler. Like I'm not, I don't have time for all that other shit. You understand? Like all the, yeah, I have some, I have some ten dollar mics on my drums right now. I'm a collector of like rare vintage drums. Like that's that's my, that's my vice. But beyond that, like the equipment, people always laugh about. You know, I'm using Pro Tools Six. Who gives a fuck? Like like he was saying, like if we had all this technology, we would overanalyze everything because then you're like, well, what if I use this plugin? Well, what if I try that plugin? Well, what if I used it? Like, then you start to go over every single possibility on every single detail. And before you know it, you have this analysis paralysis going on. We are back with another episode of We Going In Presents. Today, we're chopping it up with two amazing artists, Jay Zone and Pablo Martin of the Do Rights, to talk about their second album, Greasy Listening. We get into their creative process, their history, gear, funk, some unknown info about music for Tumadre, and much more. Also, don't forget to cop my latest books, Understanding the True Meaning, an in-depth look at Cormega's classic album, The True Meaning, written with Cormega, and Words 2, my latest interview compilation, featuring Jay Zone's Fish and Grits interview, along with first interviews with Jay Cole and Big Sean, as well as long-form interviews with Inspector Deck, Large Professor, Riza, and more. All of that is available on Amazon or in the links of this interview on wegoingin.com. What was it like for you two working together? So... Just so, just so fans know, if if they don't already, um, Zone Man drums, organ, bass guitar, turntable, Pablo guitar, bass guitar, synth, and the Fender Rhodes. So you guys both are bringing a really unique skill set to this project. So, you know, what was that like working together on this? Um, well, working together for I mean, we're both multi instrumentalists. And we both have our own approach to each instrument, but like we both play keys and we both play bass, but I can't play guitar to save my life. And, you know, Pablo's not a drummer. So like we, we have our, our instruments that are unique to us. So like the drums and the guitar, are the main thing, and then we share the other stuff. Um, and, but I think it just gives it a unique, because we, we come from such different backgrounds you know, musically, like we work in different genres, but both of the genres are groove based. So we know what a good groove sounds and feels like. And um, he just is able to bring nuances that come with playing rock and Latin and punk and different things like that. And I have nuances that come from hip hop and funk and, and you know, sonically how records sound. I'm, I'm good at dialing that in. And then when you put it all together, it really doesn't sound like any other funk that's out right now. Like, it, it sounds... You have James Brown copy funk. You have the really tight Berkeley music student. Every note has to be perfect funk. You have the, you know, the 80s retro funk which, with the keytars and the synths. And, you know, and we, and we, have, you know, we, bought, we do a little bit of everything. But then when we put it all together you know, each cut can take you to a different place. We're not trying to take one era and one sound and just, you know, we have a revival of 60s funk or 80s funk. Like, we're just taking everything that we know and love and we can do and, and put it all together, you know. I think that's really interesting, too, how you talk about just the different talents and the different abilities you're both bringing to this project. So do you feel like you were both able to take each other out of your own comfort zones and into kind of a new realm? No. We are in, in absolutely in our comfort zone. When we um, 
started playing together, we uh, realized that the, the common background was funk. So we are we are in our comfort zone, totally. I mean, we write other stuff, but 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 we know how to play that. To me, it's very. I think for both, it's very comfortable. It doesn't require much work in the sense of you know we know how to write it. Yeah. Right, but I guess my question is: Did you find yourselves doing different techniques or or experimenting with different sounds? working together that you wouldn't have normally tried? No, I think we all, we always do that in whatever we do. We always try to, uh, to try new techniques and new things that need to be for, for each song or that song is, you know? Everything is on a neat piece and requires its own treatment. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also, I agree with that. I mean, like, I, I see what you're saying, like, in terms of, like, just because we have, we work in different genres, and, like, I, like, I worked in hip-hop, which is kind of its own thing, like, like, rock, and new wave, and pop, and Latin, and, and funk a little bit, like, they can kind of overlap, like, hip-hop, and especially the hip-hop area I was in, it tends to be very insular. It's not, I mean, we, the, the, the hip hop I was in, like, was known, you know, I would sample all kinds of records. Like, it was inspired by samples to use different things. But you don't see a lot of mixing because in hip hop, in hip hop, people actually take pride in being insular, which is one of the things I don't like about it. Like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you don't really want to, be influenced by other stuff, so I see, I see what you're getting at, um, you know. But when we get together to do do rights, like like Pablo said, like funk is our common background. So like once I get out of my hip hop mode and put my funk hat on, anything is game. Like I'm like I'm not, like I said I'm not looking at errors or sounds or that sounds more rock or that sounds more jazzy or that sounds more funk. Like we just have we just have a nat we have, our common denominator is funk. So when we get into a funk zone, there might be pieces of hip-hop or Latin or jazz or whatever that naturally fall into it because we just love music and then we listen to everything. But when we're in a funk zone, you know, it's it's just so comfortable. It just happens naturally. Like, we just did a new song that's not on the album. We already started working on new material. And at this point, the songs are writing themselves. Like, we just, we don't think about, like, we got to do this or this or that. We just come up with an idea and then before you know it it's, it's just a natural you know chemistry the songs kind of write themselves you know there's, there's not there's nothing contrived about well let me try to not step on his toes it's not really like that you know? that's awesome so it's really yeah to me oh sorry, sorry Pablo go ahead to me, I feel like I'm totally used to work with people all the time you know so that's probably what it differs from our background my thing was never insular. I always depend on many other people, especially drummers, to get my uh, work done. So uh, to me, this is a small example. This is, to me, this is the opposite. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with much less people than the usual. So, so Pablo, that's really interesting too. How you say, you know, you rely on the drummer because obviously the drums are so central to any song. How do you? 
work with the drummer and in this case with Jay to make sure that you know everything comes together I mean what's that creative process like with how you how you work with and, and incorporate the drums into the song well we have several ways to work you know sometimes we just get a day together probably when we, when we really need to speed things up we get together and we write we write the the, the core of the piece that we're going to write we would probably go for like five six seven different beats and riffs and stuff like that then we weed out what's the best and we decide what we're going to work with uh, after that, we have a little chat and we decide who starts to. Sometimes I go with a little, with, with a sample of what we played and write on top and then Jay puts the drummer, the drums after. Or sometimes he just starts the project himself because I have, he has the idea and I think I want to go this way. And I just wait for him to send me the, 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 his, uh, his idea and then I write on top. It, it's very, I mean, it's very, uh, uh, how, how do you say that? It's very organic, the way we work. It doesn't seem like we had a, um, that we have a, um, you know, we don't have much trouble working together with the flow of our work until now, you know? That's awesome. And, you know, like when you talk about the songs writing themselves and how that creative process is just like we already have another song ready to go for um, that's not even on this album. You know, when you look at that, like, is this a lot of jam sessions where you guys are kind of improvising and kind of seeing what sounds good and works? You know, or are you how, how are you figuring out the grooves and the, and the patterns and how that all goes together? Well, uh, like you said, like, there's two ways we, we do a song, typically. We either get together and just play. Actually, there's three ways. We, one of them is, look, we, like, sometimes we get to a point on an album where we need four or five more cuts. So we say, okay, we're going to get together and we're going to have a session. So he'll bring, a, a, like, he has this thing that's kind of like five-string bass guitar. Like, so it, it, it could play a guitar and it could play a bass. Yeah, it's a lower tone guitar, so he can, it's also capable of bass, so we're able to experiment and work. You know, sometimes he'll just bring a bass or a guitar, like, but he'll come to my house and, like, we'll just start playing. Like, sometimes I'll come up with ideas on my own, but I don't want to start the song without him, so I'll be like, okay, I'll like I'll come up with a drum groove and I'll and I'll like record it on my phone, and then when I know he's about to come through, I'll just pull it up again. What was that drum groove? Oh, okay, and then I'll just start playing until he starts. Or sometimes Pablo will play a riff, and then I'll figure out how I want to play. I'll just keep fiddling around with the drums until I find a groove that fits, and, and you know. We'll come up with something, and when it's catchy, like we lock in, we get it right, then we record it, and then we, you know, run it, we play it back, and then we record little ideas on top of it, just to get, a, just to get like a demo, like an idea, and then we wind up retracking everything anyway. But we basically want to get all the ideas together, and then when we go back, he goes back to his studio, and I'm here by myself. We start to pepper it together, but 
the best things, the best magic happens when we get together and form the core of the group, like the core of the song, like the main melody, you know, the, the, the rhythm, the riffs, like we put that together here. Another way we create is sometimes like we come up with ideas on our own and, you know, like he'll just put, he'll come up with a, a, a groove, like a, a riff and he'll put like some placeholder drums there, like a drum machine. He'll just program something there just to hold the rhythm. And then I'll listen to it, recut the drums. I'll be like, nah, I'll do the drums like this. And then I'll recut the drums and then I'll be like, oh, check out this. And I'll add keyboards and send it back. Like sometimes we do that, but we don't do that as much because it's just not as organic. But we do do stuff like that sometimes. And another thing we do is we play in another rock band together called Lulu Lewis, which is like, it's rock. You know what I'm saying? It's punk rock. Like it's just kind of different than the do rights. It's similar but different. So like sometimes we'll be at rehearsal waiting for people to show up, you know, for rehearsal, and then we'll just start jamming. And then, like, I'll turn my phone on and tape it. And then I'll be like, yo, remember this thing we did at rehearsal? Like, we'll be rehearsed, we'll be warming up for another band and come up with shit. So like, basically, whenever I'm sitting at the drums and he's got a guitar or a bass on him, something's going to happen. So it's whether he comes here or we do it at rehearsal or, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's, the stuff just kind of comes together. So those are, those are the three ways that we usually put songs together that's incredible and i really appreciate both of you like breaking that down because i mean it's just it's, it's so cool to hear about this creative process because someone who's not musical you know it, it's so cool to hear how these songs come together and jay we've talked a lot in the past about your hip-hop production and your sampling and you know we, we've talked about how hard you've worked for certain drum sounds to to just sound the right way or for this one sample sound or you know, looking for this this sound that you need to really just bring this beat together and how you didn't make a whole lot of excess beats where you just had, you know, 30 beat CDs laying around that you could just send to anybody who wanted it, that, you know, you make beats for specific projects and that's what you have. So how is how is it for you now when you can just jam out and, and come up with something and really build it and, and work on it that way as opposed to the hip-hop production that you that you're that you're known for in the past um where it, it seemed to take a little bit longer and um just be um a different process well this is it is it, it's it's similar process but then it's different like i'm i'm, I'm a hip-hop producer at heart so i have a lot of attention to detail so like when some of these songs are in their final stages you know like i I might still use a soundbite here and there on a Do-Rights record, but but now I'm like figuring out like, okay, should I put a chord change here or should I put a fill here? Like I'm still very detail-oriented. So the hip-hop producer in me means that the Do-Rights records have a little bit, like both of us as musicians, like our individual personalities show up on these records. Even though we're a team, like our individual traits will be there, you know? But I think... This is different because I'm working with another person. So, you know, having another ear is, is like, is crucial because, like, you know, Pablo might say, like, yo, that chord doesn't work or that bass line doesn't work or that, you know, and, like, when I was making beats, you know, Al Sheed, my, my, you know, who I worked with extensively, he used to call me the mad scientist because 
he would come lay vocals for something. He wouldn't hear from me for three weeks. I would finish the song and send it to him. And he'd be like, yo, how did you get from point A to point Z? It's great, but how did you get there? Like, I would never show people my process. So when you're working as a hip-hop producer, it's like I said, it's insular. Like, it would just be me in the basement, and I wouldn't have any point of reference. Like, I wouldn't know, yo, Jay, change this or change. You know, so with, with Pablo, like, I'll send him something, and he'd be like, yo, the, the, that fill isn't working, or the keyboard, you know, like, the, the, you know, take one of the notes out of that chord. It has too much color in the chord, or... You know, like, that percussion is too clean, like, find a way to EQ it differently, like, getting constant feedback, bouncing things off each other, you know, is total is totally something that I've never done before. Except for, like, rappers. Like, obviously, when you're doing a beat for a rapper, they want to do I mean, but rappers, for the most part, don't know shit. Like, all they want to do is sound good. So, you know, you know, you know raise the vocals. That's what rappers used to always say. Raise the vocals. That was the extent of you know, my feedback. But, you know, when you're working with another musician, it's kind of like you have to listen, you have to listen to each other. And that's, that's the main part that's different from hip hop. It's almost like hip hop is kind of like, to me, hip hop is kind of like golfing or like, uh, tennis. It's, it's an individual sport, at least for me, not for others, but, but as I was concerned, hip hop was a very individual sport. Whereas, the do rights or even playing in any of these bands I play in, that's a team sport. That's football, basketball, you know, soccer, <laughs> you know, like you can't win the game if you're not clicking with everybody else on the team. Like you can win a tennis match by itself. So I, I had to go into like taking criticism, taking suggestions, being a team player, trusting, I got to trust Pablo on things, you know, like some things I might be like, Ooh, and then, you know, you trust, you trust them. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that's, that's the that's the part that's the most different from being a hip hop producer. Yeah, I think I want to add that we are, regardless of the genre, we are both two detail oriented producers. You know, in our own, and we, we, that's what we do with our music. That's what we always do. And now we are joining forces together, and uh, we're using all that. Uh, detail-oriented work to make the project shine. And at the same time, we're both very careful of the position we have on the project, you know? So we, we do take charge of the stuff that we need to take charge, you know? Sometimes we need to change stuff around, but uh, we are very respectful when it comes to getting the other person's job, you know? Mm -hmm. And we kind of all fall, so we don't do kids stuff anymore in the sense that we don't have much of a, of a, we put our personality a little bit aside and we let the music go first. So we don't get much, you know, we just discuss the music. This is basically what's our, the relation that I have with Jay. Music. That's what we talk about. Um, so we are constantly working and, that's how that's how we do it. Was was your relationship too? Did you guys hit it off and have that respect and have that natural vibe and uh, what to me definitely sounds like friendship immediately when you first when the both of you first met or is that something that you slowly built up? We met. Well, in, 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 well, sorry, go ahead, man. No, I mean, 
I've known Pablo for like almost 20 years. Like he mastered Bottle of Whoop Ass for me, uh, wow. which is my second album. So he was the mastering engineer, and I needed the CDs to be turned around fast because I was going to uh, Australia for a tour, and it was probably like March of 2000, of 2000 and I was leaving April 20-something. And as you know, like turning around physical products CDs, vinyl is then it was a lot quicker than it is now, but it takes time. And I was like, man, I want to have product to sell. And everywhere I was going looking for mastering, they're like, oh, it's going to take two weeks and it's going to be a thousand bucks. And then he worked for a company called Digital Force. I found an ad in the newspaper and he turned it around in one day and it was cheap. And I was able to get my CDs done. And from then on, he mastered everything I ever did. He's the master engineer. You look at any record. Any Jay's own record besides music for two Madre, which was actually never mastered. That's a piece of information people don't know. That record was never mastered. Wow. <laughs> it's right <laughs> off the deck. Wow. You know, like nobody knows. That that thing has been reissued twenty million times. It's all is on iTunes, it's been on vinyl. That record was never mastered. Wow. And, um, and, but and no plans to master every, it, right? Nah, fuck that. That's twenty years ago. <laughs> right. You know, but um every you know, every record since then he mastered it so over the over the years you know like oh i'm having an album release party come down like get cool like that and then i didn't even know he was a musician until like around the time he did to love a hooker uh he had a project out and, and he gave me the cd and it was really dope and i was like oh shit i didn't know he you know I just yeah. knew him as a, as a mastering guy. So then, you know, after that, he was on my radar as a musician. And when I started playing drums, he he actually, I put out a, a thing on Facebook, like, hey, does anybody want to jam? And he was the only one who responded. He came over with his bass, and he's been patient with me while I've was lear- while i been learning how to play. So. Yeah, that, that's how we started. I remember, you know, Jay came, came back, what was it, like 1998, 99, something like that, right? It was it was early two thousand, like March two thousand. Okay, well you know the date better than me. Yeah, and um, and I saw this kid, you know, with this record that it was really good, and I stopped working and I really enjoy it, and we keep working together. But I always thought, oh, well, this is a good guy. We always have a good commercial relationship. We became friends, and 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 it was always such a, you know. You know, it, it was friendly. It was always like, you know, even one day before. Remember, you have to you have to go to a wedding somewhere. You had to crash in my spot because you didn't have a place in New York that day. Remember? <laughs> yeah, I DJ the wedding and I had no place to stay. I was the only one. Yeah, man. He, he had a he had like a couch. And he was like crash. I was like, man, I don't have time to get my equipment back to Queens. And you know, That's so awesome. It was like. So, you know, it, it was one of those things. And then, you know, like when my book came out, he came to the book release party. But, like, beyond mastering and just, like, supporting each other's events, being friends, like, we had never worked together on any music until he came to my house. And that was probably in 2013, maybe? 14, yeah, that was in 2013. 2013. And, and, and we had, like, four songs for, like, those three years. And we, we, we didn't even think about doing anything with them then. With them, yeah, we we just made we came up with like we because his family at the time was in Argentina and I don't really have family in New York. Uh, my grandmother, but she at the time she was ill, so I mean 
I, I'm not a holiday guy. So we would get together like on holidays, like Christmas, um, Thanksgiving, Passover, Easter, like holidays, like when everybody else is kind of doing what they're doing. Like, what are you doing today? Like, nothing. What are you doing today? Nothing. It was jam. And, you know, we would, we would jam and we came up with like half the first album that way. And then, you yeah. know, I had, a, I, and what happened was early last year, like my grandmother passed. Um, I had like a couple of other projects that I was involved in that just were dragging and they just, they weren't, you know, they, they had been stuck in the mud and I put out fish and grits, but that was kind of like just to stay active. Like I wasn't really trying to be a rapper. I mean, you interviewed me when fish and grits came out in my mind. I just didn't want to be, I, I wasn't really feeling being a hip hop artist like that. I wasn't touring. I wasn't doing any of that shit. I, I was just putting out music because I just felt like it, but I had no plan. And at that moment I was like, maybe we should take, I was listening to that shit on the train one day that the sort of the four songs we did. I was like, man, this, if we put this out, let's see what happens. Like, let's just finish up the project. And, you know, so I started taking it seriously right after my grandma passed. Like that was where all my energy went <laughs> into, into like, you know, the first album. Like I had, I didn't know what to do with all this energy and all these weird feelings I was having. You know, so I, I started focusing on duets, and it was so challenging for me that it occupied my time. And then it, it, I, the first album came out, and it did great. People loved it, and I was just shocked. Like I just, I was like, but this was like me too. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we, because you know, we're like I said, I'm, I'm put, I put, we play in another band that's a rock band. You know, he's got his gigs, I got my gigs. He got separate things going on, and but then it just, you know, how it is, like. On, like as a musician, like what you want to do is focus on one thing, right? Like that's what every musician wants to do. You know, okay, like okay, you know, one of my idols, George Brown, he's been cool. He was the drummer for Cool in the Gang all those years. Now he's a keyboard player, but he had one job, Cool in the Gang. You know, but that's not reality if you're a musician in New York because you're in bands with people that are paying Brooklyn rent and they can't keep up, and then they gotta go get a job or this one gets a girlfriend. This one just has a whole bunch of kids. This one does this or that. And then bands fall apart. So you almost have to play in four or five different groups just because you don't know which one's going to take off just to stay active, keep it chopped up, keep playing on stage, keep gigs. So like when you have, when you, when you have to be in multiple situations to survive, you know, not unfortunately, but ultimately it comes down to like, okay, what's going on right now? And it's like, okay, these bands are slow. This is, you know, you guys are bullshitting. This is taking too much time. And, you know, I'll say, okay, well, I haven't put much attention on the do right. Let's just put attention on that for now. And then when the album is finished, I was like, oh shit. Like, I like this shit better than all the other shit I'm doing. <laughs> like, all right. You know, and that, and that's, that's a lot of it. How that's, a lot of how it came about, like, you know, it, it was like, okay, well, let's see what we can do, but it, we had we had no idea that, you know, the record would actually come out on vinyl and people would like it and people would anticipate it. Like, it was, it was totally out of left field. Yeah. And I think what, what, what was so cool for me, because, Jay, you know, I've been a fan forever, but also just studying your music and, and, and paying attention to see the incredible growth and transformation over um, 
the last few years and you know seeing seeing the the steps on facebook and really seeing like the like like the videos and and the new songs and, and just seeing how you're how you're growing and then seeing you know the the chemistry between jay and pablo and, and and how you guys work together it's been great because i feel like so many of my my favorite artists from the 90s the 2000s have have kind of just fallen in this trap of just doing what people loved about them originally but just kind of reworking that formula over and over again and you know it's 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 it gets sad at this point you know in 2017 to think like man 17 years ago i would have loved this and now now it's putting me to sleep um so it's it's just it's this isn't really even a question it's more just like I appreciate it, you know, that you guys, um, for what you guys are doing and the fact that um, you're continuing to grow and, and transform and, and, and follow what you want to do as opposed to making music for Tumadre five different times over and over again. Um, so right. I just, I think that's really yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah, got it. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to not repeat the same formula. And we try to keep it consistent at the same time, which is the most complicated part. You know, how you're going to sound, how, how you're going to be the same project with a different twist without repeating yourself or without losing the essence, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, this is what we're doing right now. This is the second record. And that's crucial to have that thing defined, you know. Um, I don't know. I think... At this point, we are just uh, developing our, you know, our brand. In the beginning, we were like punk and very respectful of the formula, the old formula, and the way it's been done. This one is a little bit more. Now we are in a more personal stage. We are putting a little bit more personality in the music. I think. Is, is yeah. That, oh, sorry. No, I was, I was just agreeing. Yeah, is that's the thing with these phone interviews, you know, like you never know when you're cutting somebody off versus like trying to avoid that awkward silence. So my bad. <laughs> um, so is would you say that that kind of personality and, and kind and and infusing that more? Is that the biggest difference between the self-titled debut and, and greasy listening? I say so. Um, like the certain greasy, like, like the, 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 the hip, the, um, the debut album. Like Pablo said, it's kind of like we were like looking at the tradition of funk, you know, and it was like, okay, you know, we had a song like Neckbone, like that was our stack dedication. And then, you know, like, uh, like each song was almost kind of like our, our version of all the different kinds of funk. You know, there was like some cumbia influence in, in Ghetto Ferris Wheel and then Getting Off sounds like 1969 psychedelic funk with some Motown thrown in you know like we we were kind of just like the music we, we were doing tributes to music we loved and putting our spin on it you know and me coming right out of hip hop like I was still as a drummer I was still kind of in that break mode so I'm thinking like you know breaks you know what I'm saying like as people would buy my last few rap albums had open drums and instrumentals with drum breaks but people like people would buy them and cut them up and it helps the record sell the DJs buy doubles and stuff. And I mean, I still do that. But like with this album, I was like, why don't I just like play, play a break that 
somebody might not sample, but it's actually a cool break. You know I'm saying like I'll just I'll just express like instead of saying like what would people want to sample, I'm saying what do I want to play as a drummer? Because now that I've been playing a little longer, I don't want to just play a cool break. Like I might want to like there's a song on the album called The Bronx Is Burning, and it's just a straight it's just a groove, it's just a straight ahead black exploitation groove. And at the end of the song, it's kind of like a jazz. It turns into like a jazz thing for the drum break. Like like a year like a year ago, I would have just kept the groove going and just played like a real funk thing. But you know, I was like, I started doing like a, a trade, like a jazz thing where you you trade two bar phrases. So Pablo, the bass would be going for two, then I would go for two, and, and it's like it's not something anybody's gonna sample. It's a drum break, but it's not nobody's gonna sample it like that. Like examples like that where. I'm not trying to make a James Brown record with a drum break. Like I'm just trying to make a funk record and whatever I'm feeling as a musician, I'll put it in there. So I think we were a lot, I think we took more risks, but at the same time, I think more, we're more comfortable at the same time. Like, you know, I, I do a lot more, uh, like commentary. Like I, I like my chief chinchilla and, from polyester Pete and like some of my Jay's ownisms actually appear on the album. So I like, think we we're feeling more comfortable. Like we don't have to make a Booker T and the MG record that sounds exactly like that. Like we could be inspired by that, but then make it a do rights record because at the end of the day, I'm Jay and he's Pablo and we're gonna have pieces of our personality. So I think our personality is coming through like la like last year was about like our take on the funk and this year it's like how the funk affects us, like what we do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that, that's that's what it is. Like we're not like well the tradition of funk. We we want to do it our way with respect to it. Like this is us. Like how funk channels through us and then how we bring it out. You know. So it's it's a, it's. I think I'm. It's a much more. It's a it's a less conventional funk record. You know, and it's the influences are like more diverse but at the same time there's a lot of you know stuff on there you really can't compare it to because our individual personalities are coming out more and more and more you know i'm like in the beginning i was like i want my drums to sound like they're from 1968 that's where all the breaks were made in the 1960s and i want my drum now i have my own drum sound i don't know what year it sounds like i just know i have yeah. a drum sound it's a direct sound it's the do right sound. So, like when I when I get my drums, I might tune them and treat them like people did in the '70s or the '80s, or I might tune them and treat them like people did in the '60s. But I'm not trying to copy like how I used to do drum break records, and I used to kind of like try to copy classic breaks and do my own spin. Like I'm not trying to copy any sound. Like I just I develop my own sound. And say, as a group, do right. Like we went from paying homage and putting our spin on things to having our own sound. And we don't even have to think about, you know, we should do this or we should do that. Like we just sit down and play. And I don't think about, I might even think like back in the day, like a year ago, like I would come to Pablo with an idea and I'd be like, yo, in my mind, I would envision how this song was going to sound when it was done. Like Pablo, I want Pablo to play this and I want this and I want that. And the song, then he would come back and play something totally different than what I was thinking. And it would sound entirely different, but it would be dope. And I'm like, I was hoping he was going to use the fuzz guitar, but he used a phaser or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like he would just come back with something that I wasn't 
thinking about. And, and, and so I, I said, sometimes you can't try to, you know, sometimes we just, we want to know, we think we know what we want the end product to sound like. So last year it was me trying to achieve this end product that I had in my head. And now it's like, here's a drum track, here's an idea, do what you do. And then it wind, but when you let go of the expectations and let the music, like you said, let the song write itself, it winds up being nothing else. Like you can't say, you know, that, you know, you can listen to an old track from last album, like Neckbone and say, yeah, that sounds kind of like some stacked Memphis. Like this year around, you might be able to say like on a new album, like, Oh, I hear a little bit of this in there, but you ain't going to, that ain't going to be the first thing that comes to your mind. You're going to be like, yeah, that's who writes it. <laughs> and that's what happens. Like you stop trying to control every aspect of the music and just let it, just let it do what it's going to do. You know, and and really yeah. sometimes you have a feeling what you want to do and what you want to achieve and how you're going to do it but and sometimes you're successful on that sometimes you know even with, with, with the do it stuff but mostly I always follow the song you know so you can, you might sit down with an idea you know the first album has a lot of big old orchestrations and lucky enterprises and stuff like that. For this one, none of that stuff works. You know, I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to orchestrate. I'm going to do a big sound, and it didn't work. So I have to go smaller. You know, start to follow the songs and realize that that, that was going to be for me the difference on this record. It's going to be a smaller ensemble. I started removing guitars. Guitars, I needed a tractor just bass and guitar, one guitar, no solo, no almost no synthesizers, mostly pianos and, and, and fuzzy clarinets and stuff like that. And um, when I personally, when I had that concept, that's what I, I followed to write this, my part. So I said, this is, what I, this is how I'm going to approach this album. This is going to be my contribution on this part. I'm going to make sure that the ensemble is small, Powerful and just. that was my song, and I follow every song based on that. Then you know, chord change, notes, sounds—they were irrelevant to me. I just had to do what I needed, what I felt it was needed for the song. Right. Yeah. Just, just stop overthinking and just yeah. What you know, because when you write in the song, you know what it needs, but you might think like, oh, this could use a solo, or this could use a this or that. And sometimes the song ain't telling you that. You know what I'm saying? The song is saying just groove. Or the song is saying, like like I was saying, Bronx is Burning earlier. Like, I didn't want to play just a regular B-Boy break. I, I wanted to solo around the toms because that's what I felt like doing. So, you know, and, and Pablo was saying with the orchestration, like the first album had a lot of strings, a, a lot of big orchestrations, like a song like Hustle. Like, it has these layers of strings. And it's like orchestral. It sounds like you're watching an old 70s cop show. Like, it's huge. This time around, like, there was no room for it. Like, the way the songs were, they sounded better stripped down with, like, four instruments. You know, so you, you can't be afraid to follow the song and the instinct rather than follow your vision that you had in the beginning. You know, that's what I, that's the biggest theme of the album. 
That's awesome. And I feel like that philosophy and, and, and actually being able to do that, I mean, it's one thing to say we should do that and not be able to, but to actually do it shows just more confidence too in terms of like the genre and, and what you're doing and, and just like the direction and where you're going. I mean, um, because the other piece is like you think about the comfort level when, you know, a lot of times when, when artists start, it's almost that imitation phase of like working and, you know, I know, I know I did it as a writer when I started and um, I had to work to find my voice. And I mean, I still am, obviously it's not, it's a never ending process, but do you feel like, like just like the comfort with each other too helped you to know, Hey, we got to just let this ride out and, and, and actually do it. And, and not like you said, like the stacks or the Booker T and the MGs record, like, you know, to, to find that do right sound. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said earlier, like it's really just about knowing that you're working with a good musician and you can trust them and their ideas. So I could send Pablo a drum track and an organ riff, and, and like instead of like say, giving him direction, like a year ago I would be like, yo, I'm thinking this, maybe you should play this, I'm, I'm thinking it. Like then I realized, like, I was like yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he'd be like, yeah, whatever, and then he would send back something different, I'd be like, Yo, that's not what I wanted, but the shit is dope. It was a, then eventually, like he didn't—he never said anything though. He would just say, "Yeah, yeah, 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 okay, yeah." And, and I'm thinking, like, I'd have to say that was my interpretation of what Jay told me. You know, it's not that I did—I did not try to follow the instruction. I actually did. Yeah, you know, like, when it's a verbal instruction of something that is like musical, the interpretation is pretty broad. And I use that. Yeah, like, it went from instructions to suggestions. I'll say that. Like, like a year ago, like, I would be, like, very, I would, like, I would have a very stringent thing that, you know, like, I, I want you to stay in these parameters. Now, I'll make a suggestion. So, we had one recently we just finished that's not on the album where I had this drum groove. He, he came down and laid down a bass line. I had the bass line going. I played organ. And I was like, I made a suggestion. Like, he has this thing called a stylophone. It, it's like a little toy that you can actually, it's a musical instrument, but it looks like a little toy. Like, it's small. It's weird. It has its own sound. It's different. And he used to bring it to rehearsal, but then I stopped seeing it. And I was like, remember that little thing you used to bring? You think you could do a solo on that? It wasn't like, yes, at 47 seconds, start a stylophone solo. <laughs> it's like, I was like, remember that thing? Like, see if it works and that's all I'll tell him I'm like just just see how it sounds and then I'll leave it up to him as you know because he's you know his he has a, he's, you know a great musician so I trust the musicianship so I might say remember that you know I might you know the kind of guitar he's using like yo that Telecaster I like that sound see if see if the Telecaster works but I won't tell him how to play where to play it what to do, what notes to use in a chord, how to color a chord. Like, I used to try to control that, but a lot of that was me, the hip-hop producer in me. Because again, like I said in the beginning, when you're a hip-hop producer, it's an individual sport. So like, those are just, those are just like quirks that came with being a producer that was, I was a little bit of a control freak when I was, when I was making hip-hop records. Because I never had people around, I was, I was the, the main act. Like, I would hire rappers just to do a verse. Okay, here's your verse. I paid you for your verse. Get the fuck out of here. Like, I'll finish the record. You know, but 
now it's like I realize like I'm dealing with someone who has more experience than me when it comes to, you know, making music from a composer, like a non-sampling composition standpoint. So, you know, and I know what he's capable of as a musician, you know, so I just say, yo, do your thing. <laughs> you know, and we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, it's just like, he'll send me something and he'll have a drum machine going. But like, yeah, we got to, you know, you got to do the drums over. And, he, you know, he might say a suggestion like, you know, uh, I want to like that. Yeah, like I want play like you know play something like, or you know he might say like uh, play something on the tom. You know, like he say I want I want you to just you know play play like go all around the tom tom. Like he might, but he's not gonna say like at this point do this, at this point in the song stop, at this point do that, tune your tom toms this way, you know like roll at this point like it, it's not that detailed anymore like and, and we know each other well enough that you'd be like okay you want someone to tom okay i'll do it and then you know like again like i followed in like when we had a song called bojo's groove where he told me to do something on the tom and you know i tried to follow instructions but i felt it sounded better with like a regular 16th note hi-hat groove and that's what we ended up doing and i ended up using the toms just as like breakdown you know and you know, that's what it is. Like, you have an idea, you express it, but then you have to let, we have to let each other be who we are. And, and you know, because it's always interesting when you give some, it's like, when you, it'd be like making a beat and somebody programs the drums and comes up with the loop and you give it to another producer to add their touch. It's kind of like everybody's adding to it. That's what made Public Enemy so great because you had four guys. The Bomb Squad was four people. That's why you'll never hear records like that again, because you got four people working together, or you have like a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, or you have Pharrell and Chad, or take your pick, you know what I'm saying? You, anybody, you know, like any Holland, Dozer, Holland, when they're writing songs, anybody, like when you have that committee, eventually you have to trust your partners and let them, let them add their flavor to it. And usually you have a better result doing that than trying to control every element of the song you know yeah I, t I totally know what you mean man you know as a teacher as a writer i've always felt like my best work comes when i'm working with others when i've been in my own kind of silo it's always like you know i'm doing the best i can but it can probably be better um so i, I definitely get what you're saying there um the other interesting thing you know you talk about equipment and and Jay, you've always been someone who said, you know, sometimes drugstore headphones are better than the Beats headphones. And it's interesting to watch your different equipment. They phones. are. Never sometimes. They actually are. Beats are garbage. Drugstore really headphones are always better than Beats. Always. Okay. <laughs> always. Kobe, I, I'll take Kobe's over Beats anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't worry about equipment so much. And I have what I need to work relatively comfortable but um, it's nothing fancy or it's nothing that, you, that anybody else cannot have at their home, you know, except for my telebase. That's the only special feature that I have that, that, that is important and pricey and, 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 and it's a finding. But the rest, our limitations are infinite. So this is part of what we work with. We, we, we are always 
limits limited by our own gear, which is a very good thing to be limited by. So you push it till the end, and you keep your things simple. And, yeah. and that allows you to work fast, you know? When, when you don't have too many choices, you just work fast. You know, the, the guitar sound has to come out from the guitar and the amp, the bass sound has to come from the bass, and, and as long as you, are, you have a decent recording technique, you can do it with whatever, you know. Uh, we don't have no fancy preamps, no very fancy microphones. You have no budget for that. Yeah. I would love to have it, but it never happens. So we work with the basics. If I got equipment, if I got a recording budget, I just go to Sizzler. Like I'm not, I don't have time for all that other shit. You know what I'm saying? Like all the, yeah, I have some, I have some ten dollar mics on my drums right now. You know, and we were, you know, I mean, like I'm a collector of like rare vintage drums. Like that's that's my, that's my vice. But beyond that, like the equipment, people always laugh about. You know, I'm using Pro Tools six. Gives a fuck. Like like he was saying, like if we had all this technology, we would overanalyze everything because then you're like. Well, what if I use this plugin? Well, what if I try that plugin? Well, what if I use it? Like then you start to go over every single possibility on every single detail, and before you know, it, you have this analysis paralysis going on, where like you're not, you know, you're just overanalyzing everything, and, and you're not making like eventually like the music speaks for itself. Like it doesn't really matter what you use to make it. It's like what you, it's what you're playing and the feel of what you're playing. You know, and the sound, so, like, we, we don't get caught up in all that gear shit, you know, like... I actually have something in my life, I have no shopping desire. I don't want anything. I don't see a piece of gear and I wish I will have it. I don't have that consuming uh, consumer mind anymore. I'm, I'm, like, totally oversaturated, and if I could take it and read of stuff, I would do it, too. But... Um, you know, I'm stick with what I have. I'm happy. Yeah. That's incredible. And, you know, I think sometimes you, you know, you read producer interviews and it's like, you know, I'm getting, you know, like you guys said, you know, the new, the new Pro Tool 6 or whatever, whatever the new, you know, toy coming out is. You guys are like, Jay, I know you found some really cool stuff and Pablo, I'm sure you have too, that you guys have, have turned into something amazing that, um, other people kind of had given up on, right? Like, you guys have found some pretty cool gear, I'm sure, over the years. Pablo found an amp in the trash. Yeah, I've two amps in the trash. How? That's crazy. Who th who's throwing that stuff away? I was in the village at the right place at the right time. Back when, you know... I don't know, I found this little box amp in the trash. Probably was, you know, disposed by some ex-girlfriend. Cheap amp. It was fantastic. And then I found a vibrant champ in a basement of, a, you know, like in the middle, in, in the trash. That, that's a finding. That's something that I'm still using. Once I found a big amp, a space amp that it was destroyed, and I couldn't get it in a cab, and it was raining, and still like, you know, thinking why I didn't pick it up, but whatever. I guess I yeah. have the cycle of luck. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I have a bunch of, ten, like I said, $10 mics on the kit. 
My mixing board was a hundred dollars. You know, I, my snare drum was forty bucks on Craigslist. Like, <laughs> you know, you just you just you just make shit work. Like, you know, I got shit that's held together by twist ties and electric tape. In fact, the other day, do you remember I found a drum piece on the street and I told you to see if you want a hi-hat? Yeah, you found a hi-hat clutch. You could always use a hi-hat clutch. I, I, I found the whole thing. You didn't oh, want shit. It. Yeah, it was a Tama. It didn't look like any good. It was like a, like a, like a normal Tama hi-hat. I told yeah, you but that. you kept the clutch. I told you always keep clutches. Yeah, I kept the use. clutch. I have the clutch. So, yeah. yeah, so that's that's how we're living, man. Like I, you know, like I, I'm a I'm a gear nerd a little bit, but like more like sometimes with the instruments. But then a lot of times, what I end up using is whatever's at my disposal. Like like I I, I personally I don't like microphones. Like I don't because there's so many of them. There's so many microphones that I just don't have the time or the patience. Like, like to put it in perspective, I have, you know, like I said, I have the mics on my kit right now. Uh, I have two mics that were ten bucks a piece that I, that I recorded with, you know. But then I have a pair of twenty five hundred dollar, you know, Newman mics that Danger Mouse let me borrow years ago, and he he just said hold on to them. You think the twenty five hundred bucks? I can't get a good sound out of those mics to save my life. I put them on yeah, drums. Those, I put you them never on. use those. Yeah, I know. I never use them. I have a pair of uh, KM84, Newman K80, KM84s. Those things are two or $3,000 for a stereo pair. And Danger Mouse gave them to me to record drums for them. I used them for that project. But then, like, I never used them again. And every time I pull them out, I'm like, I don't like these mics. Like, they're, just, they're not the kind of sound, especially not for the do-right shit, but period. And, and I'm like, these are $3,000 mics and, and they're collecting dust. And it's not, it's not, I'm not saying that to try to be cool or try to be ironic. It's just a fact. Like I wanted to use them because the, somebody gave them to me, but they just, I want to, I'm curious about, about, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you could use them because <laughs> I, I, I found no use. Like my $10 mic gave me what I wanted. And you know, like I really just don't, I use shit till it breaks. Like, you know, I'll buy drums because I'm a drum fanatic, but when it comes to, like, recording equipment and, like, you know, mixing consoles and outboard gear and mics and shit like that, like, I I got, you know, I got a pair of studio headphones that are held together by tape right now because I'm just, like, too cheap to buy another pair. Like, it, it doesn't stop me from working. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I, I just, when I want to make music, I want to, get my ideas out as quick as possible. I don't want to be here changing settings. You know, oh, I have to call Apple because the iLock isn't functioning. And I, I don't want to put on a technical hat when I'm creating. I want to sit down and do the shit right now. Like, what's the quickest way? Like, I have a, an old four-track cassette player that I run a lot of things through to get an analog sound. That's basically what a plug-in does with my computer's too old to use plugins it'll crash if i use plugins like but i'm not going to go spend three thousand dollars to update my entire system when i can just use this thing that works for me and people see me use it and they're like yo you're crazy you're using that shit and i'm like to me it's just I, when i'm creative mode i don't want to be i don't like technical shit i don't like dealing with technical shit i just want to make music so i get equipment that allows me to 
make music in the quick and dirty way, which is the way I like to work. You know, so. I, th- I think that's incredible. And, and like you said, it's, it's not to be ironic. And, you know, I know some, some people out there are probably like, Hey, I, I want to see if I could do this whole album on, you know, such and such equipment just for the gimmick of doing it. But like, um, you know, the cool thing about you, you, Jamie, I remember when, um, you know, when minutes and, and were, were a rare thing with, with cell phones, man, you were just as protective about those minutes and, and not, not wasting any minutes on, uh, unnecessary phone calls or anything, man. So like, you've always been about logic and conserving and, um, just you're just not a wasteful guy. Yeah, no, it's just like I don't like I don't like spending money. I don't like you know I don't like spending a whole bunch of time trying to figure out how shit works. Like that was for me when I was 15. I would buy drum machine samplers and figure them out. Like now, I want to create some music. I want to create music as fast as possible. I don't want to deal with learning any new software. None of that shit. Like I have I have what works for me. You know, and if you and if you were to change some of the gear in here, it would still sound like a do rights record, <laughs> you know, because because of the way we do shit. You know, like a lot of it is just the way we, our technique. Like, obviously, the gear has something to do with how the record sounds. It has a lot to do with it, but but the spirit of the records wouldn't change. You know, it, you know, it's like because we have a way of recording, you know, and a way of of using whatever gear we have, like. You know, I'm going to use a mixing board the same way, whether I'm using a Neve console or a Tascam. You know, now the fact that I'm not using a Mackie, yes, that makes a difference. Mackies sound horrific. You know, they make this sterile and they probably, the record wouldn't sound as good, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a do-rights record. Like, you have to, you know, once you once you develop a style and a sound and, and the way you like to work, a workflow, it's just like you just want to work quick, quick. You don't want to get caught up in gear and shit. Like everybody has a gear phase, and eventually you get out of it, you know. Because then you realize I've been, I've been had all these different drums. I've had twenty different drum sets, but they always sound like me. You listen to all those records, you can't tell that they're different drum sets. I I can because I'm I'm, I'm a psycho. But the average person listening to do right isn't going to be like, well, that's a and that's a Camco and that's a Rogers that's a Sonor they're not going to do that so like I realized that you know like whatever drums you put in front of me you know they're going to sound like me <laughs> so I, I kind of stopped being crazy about gear you know even in that regard you know I tune them the way I tune them and I play them and record them how I play and record them you know that's it's always going to sound somewhat similar you know that's that's awesome, Jay. I think I think too, man. That's a it's a big reason I think why you know we've always gotten along is you know um, for the longest time I recorded all my interviews off a flip phone um, into a computer mic and it and you know it's it's, it's how it worked, man, for me. And it it was you know I, I totally get that. You know what are your guys' plans as far as live gigs go? You know especially playing together. Like, do you guys have plans for live shows and? What kind of challenges does that present, you know, when you look at like like a do right show and the fact that you guys are doing multiple instruments on a song, how do you guys um, pull that off live? We haven't done live shows yet. Because as you say, we are a duo and we were so busy writing the albums that we didn't have the um, 
time to actually book the the the, the musicians. You know, we have an idea who eventually will be. You know, but um, it's not that we didn't. We, you know, we have a, a lot of um, people asking us about live shows, but we never have a real offer to do it. You know, so so we were. You know, okay, fine. We're just gonna go and keep writing the albums and put the music um, and and keep um, and keep working like this. The, the fact is, uh, a lot of people ask about live shows, but few people go. You know, and um, that's a problem. You know what I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about. So yep. so uh, everybody's expecting someone else to go to your show. So it's not easy. And it's not. It's complicated. I like. I love doing live shows that, um, you know, we have to put the band together. We have to, I don't know. It's, uh, this is, you know, a lot of the audience of uh, the do rights mostly, you know, part of the, the day's follow-up that are mostly hip hop and we talk from that side. And it's something to go to shows that much. And I'm coming from rock. And Rock State definitely don't care about going to that show. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just that. So, let's say that we have to, pro you know, we are very lucky. And we have to be very thankful to the fact that we are able to move our project without having to go and do it live. You know, with the obligation, you know, or with the expectation that... that Nothing has happened, but if you don't play live, even nothing has happened even less. You know what I mean? So I guess we are a little bit comfortable doing it like that. I would like to do it eventually. You know, I would like to, to, to do the live show. But um, knowing me and knowing Jay, the the way we this is gonna we want it to sound, and we're gonna we want better for less than we actually are putting out on a record, it means for us a lot of extra work, you know? Yeah, and we, we, we get a lot, we play in a rock band that plays live. Yeah. But, you know, there's, we have a front, we have a, you know, Dylan, she sings lead, so we have a front person. Like, in, like instrumental, unless you're playing jazz, instrumental is actually a hard sell for, like, any, like, we're just because then you fall into like the jam band category, and you know it, they want you know like that. That's more like a, a jazz thing. So it's kind of like you know I used to get asked all the time about touring when I was a hip hop artist. But what I try to explain to people is I have ten diehard fans in every city in the world, <laughs> that every major city. That means it's ten people from every city buy my record. I could I could sell a good amount of records, but when I get to every city and 10 people would come, but then two can't make it and five people show up, that's not enough to tour. Like that, that's what I try to explain to people. Like I'm a niche artist and the do rights are kind of a niche thing. So we have like fans in each city, but how many, you know, is, how many would show up and is that enough to pay for transportation? You know, like rap is kind of mercenary shit. The MC comes, and just raps, whoever the local DJ is, like, we have to transport gear, instruments. You know what I'm saying? Like, traveling, you know, touring and traveling with a band gets expensive. And 
there's more people involved, so the pay cut is, is divided by four at the least. So, you know, it just becomes a lot more complicated, and we're all adults with bills and responsibilities. So, you know, I learned from my rap career that touring is kind of like when they come to you with offers and guarantees or you're able to just play locally and just do it for fun, then that's one thing. But to, like, to try to pack in a car and travel around the country, you know, at this point in my life, it's just, like, financially, you know, I have a residency, Pablo has stuff, you know, stuff that pays our bills that we have to be home for. So, you know, we we love to do it in theory. It's just, like, how practical is it? That's why. Uh, that's funny because that's why the the actually the the pretty listening is a live album. Here. Yeah, it's a yeah. and that's the theme of the what you just talked about, Brian. That's the theme of the album. You know, it's it's a it's a fake live album. Exactly, and there is a song over there <laughs> that's called awesome. "Life Is a Tickling Circuit," where Jay explains the situation very clearly. Yeah, I, I explain what it's like to tour because people who tell you to tour like have like I've toured, Chitlin and regular I've toured, and I know what it takes to tour. And I'm in other bands. Like I said, we play we play in a rock band together, and then I play in another band that gigs. I, you know, we all gig regularly, and you know when you get when your payout is fifty bucks for the night and there's six of you, <laughs> you know. Like, that's just the reality. Like, when it comes to this kind of thing, you don't make it, and then you make it big. There's very little in-between. Like, hip-hop has an in-between. Like, with bands, it's like you're either getting drink tickets or you get big money. Like, there's, there's few and far between where you're, you know, doing all right. So it's kind of like with all the requests we got to play live for the last album, we said, well, we're going to make a live album but a fake live album. So we, we, we set it up at a fictitious club called the Collar Green Lounge. You know, Chief Chinchilla is the host. And, you know, we just got some canned audience and parts and some crowd interaction. And, you know, it's totally studio, but it, it put together, and even the back album cover looks like a live album. It looks like we're in a small place with people around us playing. And But it's kind of like, the, it's like, it's not a concept album through and through, but, there's an undercurrent that speaks to like the, the gigging musician and the, the plight of the gigging musician. Like that's kind of like the theme of it. And we wonder, I just thought it would be a good idea to be tongue in cheek about it and say, okay, let's make it a live album, but in a place where we don't get paid for the show, there's nobody there, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and, and people will be like, you want to hear us live, we have a live album. And it's, it's kind of like, it was inspired by Live at the Sex Machine, which was a Cool in the Gang album. The second album, like, was a live album. Just like ours, this is our second album, live album. So, I always thought it was ballsy to record your second album live. Like, nobody does that. And, <laughs> and they did it at a place called The Sex Machine in Philly, and there was about 15, 20, 30 people in there. And they didn't have enough noise from the crowd for it to sound live. It just sounded like a studio album with a big reverb on it. So what they did was they added this canned audience and had it like appear through the album. <laughs> and it was like so like it was just really kitschy and weird, you know, but I always thought that was so cool that they did that. It just gave the album this quirky personality. 
to cover up the fact that there was no crowd noise. So I was like, all of this inspired us to make this album a quote unquote live album. And, you know, to answer your original question, like listening to the album and the way it's done will kind of give you an answer to that. You know, it has nothing to do with what we want to do. It, it has more to do with what's practical, you know, like time wise, money wise. And, you know, like possibility. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're well aware of that. That's why we made this album like a fake live out. Also, as, as the project keeps moving forward, the more and more and more and more people keep asking us when we're going to play live. You know? So yeah. they assume that we're going to play live. You know what I mean? So, so, so one of the first questions I will get when I talk, end up talking about the project is when are you guys playing live? When are you guys going to play? And the fact is we have a second album, which is a live album, but we haven't played a single show ever. So I think it's pretty funky in my in my view. Yeah, and then you know you and we play live all the time together, but with yeah. other people with us. We're in a rock band, so we do play live. But yeah, again, well, we we have a contingent of people that are our friends that come to every show. But yeah. you know, like we do that. I do that because I like everybody in the band, and I do that. Because as a drummer, I need all the experience I can get. I don't do those shows trying to get rich. I don't do those shows with delusions of grandeur. I know that, you know, being playing on stage and playing in the studio are entirely different. And I feel like most drummers start as, as gigging drummers and they have to learn how to record in the studio. That's what most drummers start. They, they play in bands, nightclubs, garages, bars, and then six, seven years into their career, they finally have their first studio session. And then they play in the studio. Me, I started out as a breakbeat drummer. So, like, I came from the studio, and then four years into my playing, I finally started playing live. So it's backwards. But, like, to me, this valuable thing to me is, as a drummer, you know, and every once in a while we'll get a show where we can travel or a show that has a budget or whatever. And, and those are great, but it's like, I'm doing this to become a better musician. You know, like if, if I'm going to transition away from out of being an MC hip hop artist and into being a musician, like this is my, this is my dues that I have to pay. So that's why I don't really trip, you know, like it, it's a, it's a process I can't afford to skip as a musician. So, but I do it for that. I don't do it like, we're going to get rich and we have to promote this album. I play live to work on my chops. That's why I play live. You know, and to and just get that, it's a great feeling. Like when the band is kicking ass on the stage, like that's the greatest feeling in the world. And the crowd is feeling like that. There's no amount of money that can replace that shit, you know, but I do it with realistic expectations. You know, both bands, I play two, I play in two different bands and we play live in New York all the time and people are like when are you coming when are you coming to London I'm like well if you find somebody who's willing to eat their shirt and put five six motherfuckers on a plane in a hotel feed them pay them <laughs> basically if you've got five or six grand that you don't care about if you have a friend with six thousand dollars that they just don't give a fuck about they would take that six feet twisted in the wind and they like my my music the band I'm in and you guys like it then send that $6,000 and we'll do your show. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, 
That's what I tell people. Like, people are like, you know, when did the do rights come to the UK? Where you find a friend with six grand to pay for everything. Even if we don't make a lot of money as performers, like, you have to get visas. You have to get flights. You have to get transportation, ground transportation, accommodation. You know, and, and you have to pay for four or five motherfuckers at the minimum. You know what I'm saying? Like, the other band I'm in, he wants to bring in horns, strings. I'm like, that's like 13 fucking people. Like, <laughs> nobody's going to make any money. So now with my other band I play in, we're actually in the process of changing the arrangement so we can get away with six people. Like, he's writing strings and horns out of the arrangement so we can afford to go to Europe. <laughs> you know? wow. Like, that, that's what it's like. Like, he wrote these, these records have strings and horns because in the studio, you can have people come in and do that, but how can we get five uh, bass player, drummer, keyboard, guitar, and two vocalists? How can we make up for all the shit that's lost? Because the well, vocalist actually doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and that's the other thing, you know. With with being the studio people that we are, you know, we can keep the fantasy alive. You know, for us, like the chief and Pimpin' Polyester Pete, a real character, you know, in the album. Right. Yeah, Chief Chinchilla you know? and Pimpin' Polyester Pete, like those, those were all the egos from my rap days, you know, but I'm able to like tone them down a little bit because I don't want to use profanity and all that crazy, but I, I tone them down a little bit, but they're there, you know, and they, and they can kind of carry the records, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, we're able to have fun with those characters and those kind of propel the, the projects forward. But, I mean, it's like, I know they toured a lot in the end and rest in peace, Walter Baker, but Becker, but the Steely Dan was like that in the 80s. Like, they didn't really tour. I don't know if they toured at all early on. I think they were just like studio rats and like great songwriters and they had this precision that they were going, we're not like that. Like, we're way more raw. Like, they would be there splicing tape and getting perfect takes. But Steely Dan, to me, always turned making records into an art. kind of, And, like, live performance is an art, and making records is an art. They're both art. So it just so happens that the live performance art comes from the other bands we're in, and the studio art, you know, comes, you know, with the do-rights. And, and we love to play live, but, again, it's it's about you know, what's practical, you know, it's like saying like, you know, everybody deserves to be a millionaire and marry a beautiful woman. You know, come on, man. Like we live in the real world, man. You know? So. Exactly. That, that makes a lot of sense. And it's not like hip hop where you can, um, not even bring a DJ, just bring a, bring a beat CD, play it. And then like rap over your instrumentals. Yeah, like you can't that's what it. I, that's what I was saying. But yeah. that's to me sport even for hip hop, you know. And it's just a yeah, if you put a show where it's just a DJ and an MC, you gotta be really, really, really good in order to be entertaining. Yeah, totally. You know, and uh, and and uh, to me, dancers don't cut, you know, to a show. <laughs> to begin, yeah. with. you're feeling feeling space with dancers and homies and all that thing. Oh. And then you're singing with through the back with to the record with the vocal still on it, you know. <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, with that, like uh -huh. I mean, 
I mean, that's because that, that's what shows my rock music portion of, of this thing. That, that to me, it's not entertaining. It's boring. You know, I mean, if I go to a show, I like to see a musician playing or, or, or something that is more confrontational than a dancer and a and someone not leaving. You know, but but, but even a dancer like. Big Daddy Kane had Scoob and Scrap Lover. Like, they had dance routines. Like, Heavy D was a big guy. He could dance. Like, even that was made hip-hop shows exciting. Like, to see somebody rapping over a CD or a DAT or, or just, like, Serato, like, DJ playing a song and just depending. Like, basically, rap shows, like, 80% of rap shows are people just getting over on the fact of getting over on their catalog. Like, people love the song so much that they don't care if you rap over the vocals. They just want to hear the song. It's like going to a nightclub and a girl tells the DJ, play this song. She doesn't care if you blended it on beat. She doesn't care if you, you know, played it with skill and used transit. They just want to hear the song. They don't care about the craft of DJ. They just want to hear the song. So, like, a lot of hip-hop stuff is easy to book because... I've, I've toured solo before. I toured Australia by myself and had a different DJ in each city. So you're only paying for one person's flight visas. You know, I stayed with a friend, you know, the whole time. So, like, there was very limited hotel. Fee. Like, hip-hop is very cheap to book. But then on the same token, like, hip-hop shows don't offer a lot. Like, there's, there's certain groups that are, like, really good live. You know, like, they're really good. Like, Master 8 is, like, a dynamic live because he's in his 50s and he has so much energy. Or a public enemy, even. That they probably a public enemy in Prophets of Rage. Like, those guys are like live performers for real. Like, they, they totally dominate a stage and they play with so much energy. But, so people like that are like worth the price of admission. But I'll say like 98% of hip hop shows I've been to were fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. so, but, you know, but at the same time, like, fans just want to come and hear the music and see the rapper, and it doesn't really cost any money. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you were to leave the homies and the entourage and all that other shit at home, like, a rapper could just travel city to city and do it Chuck Berry style. Like, just have a different DJ in each city and cut the loss. But with a band, you know, with a band, you know, it, it, I went and played South by Southwest. They charged me fifty dollars to check in my fucking kick drum pedal on the airplane. I had to pay fifty dollars <laughs> just to check my pedal. It's it like, it, and I bought a pedal and a snare. Like, you know, if I had bought a cymbal bag, that'd be another fifty bucks. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it, it, like traveling as a band, it's hard to do. That's why so many bands are, are younger because when you're 22 years old, you'll pile all in a van and drive around the country and play for no guarantees and shit. But then as you get older, you got bills, responsibilities, you got aches and pains. You know, it's just, it, you have to be selective. You know, like a show in New York City, I'll do it. You know, if I always tell Pablo, like, just check with me, make sure I have nothing on the calendar, but I'm not going to ask questions about the gig. Like, they have a back line. That's all I want to know because I don't like bringing my drums up. It's like, do they have a back line? Yeah. I never ask what the guarantees are or how many people are going to be there or who else is on this. I just say, okay, oh, we got to... Oh, I answer for that. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Because <laughs> no. like, in New York City, 
on a Wednesday night, what else would I be doing? Now, if I have another gig, like my, my, my residency gig pays pretty well. So if I have my residency, then I say, I, all my bands know Jay can't do Thursdays because that's his bread and butter day, you know, gig. So I, I can't do it. But if I can do it and I don't have no other plans, I'm going to yeah. do it and not ask questions because to me it's just like otherwise I'd be practicing in my basement by myself sitting there in my box of drawers just doing paradiddles on a fucking snare drum. You know what I'm saying? Like, but to get in front of people and play, it's a, it's a better it's a better test of your ability and it's a, it's a better learning experience. And then, you know, you never know what can happen. You don't know who's in the crowd. You know, sometimes I'll watch other bands and see another drummer and be like, wow, I want to go home and try it. Then I'll see other bands and be like, damn, that guy was bad. I, I know what not to do. <laughs> you know, like, you know, to me, I'm learning. So a gig is a gig, but then when you talk about, like, going on tour, you know, you have to take into account the overhead that comes with touring. Most bands lose money touring. So, you know, that's just... You know, the, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent on, on tour, but that's just that's the complicated complicated relationship you guys have with touring, and that's why our album has that theme. You know, we love to, but that's you know, until until we're in a situation where it's possible and it makes sense, and people who say, "Hey, when are you touring?" are actually going to come to the show, <laughs> yep. Rather than saying, oh, I got to watch my kids. No, you said, when are we going to be there? We're here. Where are you at? Yep. <laughs> you know, like that's so, you know, that's that's what we're, what we're dealing with, you know. And we also, sorry, and we also, we are exploring other, uh, by not doing this, we have the chance to store other possibilities, you know. Like, maybe we're going to start, you know, producing, try to produce songs and do it with, work with singers, you know. Yeah. stuff like that or movies or, or whatever so we have the time you know yeah uh, like that, that's we have people you know we have stuff that's already been placed in films um you know we have we did a theme song for a film a Vivica Fox film called Fat Camp and then we did we remixed the Ghostface Killer and Wax Taylor record um which is you know that's a, an achievement for me, you know, coming from a hip hop background. And I did another record that has Large Pro and M and, and Little Fame from MOP on it. You know, so like we're able to get those opportunities, like or or if the people, the guy who handles our publishing and gets our music synchronized for like television, if he calls us on a Thursday afternoon, like yo, would you guys like to take a crack at a theme song? They need it by Monday. We can do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like Pablo could work on it, I could work on it. We go back and forth, put our heads together, and try to make it work, and then possibly get something that'll pay ASCAP royalties for the rest of our lives. When normally, we, if we were really trying to tour, okay, we got to find a keyboard player and make sure he learns parts. And you know, I mean, I, I actually got, I didn't tell you, Pablo, we got to offer. Somebody offered us money, but but this guy. I uh, deal with like could the do rights play on a Thursday down by you know the South Street seaport and it was like you know the offer wasn't much <laughs> let's put it that way and I was like well and he's like yeah it's in three days and I was like well, where are we going to find a keyboard player bass player in three days to learn the part and then I looked at the amount and I was like 
A, I'm DJing that night at, at you know my gig, so I can't do it. And B, it was like, you know, I'm not even going to bring this up because this, this is like, you know, like when you hire musicians, you know, you want to pay them. <laughs> like that's just, but sometimes it's just not possible, you know. So it's very, it's very, you kind of just have to find bands that you really believe in and enjoy, enjoy the people. So that the ups and downs of being a live performer don't make you discouraged. Yeah, you know. speaking of that, as a curiosity, and speaking, we were commissioned a gig that we had like a shitload of rejections to the point that we, in the middle of the first and the second album, we wrote another album of blues rock, like 14 songs we had. Yeah, oh, wow. you know that 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 yeah that we the uh, I mean I don't know what that is it's there and it's and, and, and it's gonna be for placement that we have time to do that but uh, that was crazy you know so all the stuff that we could do if we, we we focus on energy and the way we work you know yeah so things you know take a lot of time and you know we you know we I, I see us scoring scoring things to film and TV. I definitely see us working with a singer. And, you know, like, touring as a live band, I think it's, 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 I think if we keep putting out music the way we have been, like, album, new single, album, this, that, if we stay busy, and then, you know, people, like, our profile picked up, I think it'll happen on its own. If it's meant to happen, it's gonna happen on its own. I think the key now is to be consistent and to keep putting out good records and and getting better and better and expanding and doing more different things. And then it'll, ha if, if we're going to tour, it's just going to happen. Like the demand will build up to the point where it makes total sense, you know, just yeah. to do it. So, and, and if, if money wasn't a factor either way, would you guys prefer being on the road or do you enjoy being in, in the city, making the music, and really focusing in on like the creation process and, and becoming better musicians through um, working on, on music together and, and seeing these songs come to life versus performing them um, multiple times for a crowd. Well, I really like being on the road. But I was extremely lucky on the way that I got to be on the road. And I know there are two ways to be on the road. Like the good way and the way that it normally is, <laughs> mm. you know? So um, I do miss the road, and, I'm, and I do miss how spoiled I was when I was touring with Compton Club, you know? But I know that if it's our own operation, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna go through a lot, a lot of complications, you know, the same, you know, because even Thompson has their complications that I had, didn't have to deal with, you know? but. They were there, you know. It's hard for the person who is taking a tour on their shoulder. However, if you go as a musician and you get paid and you get hired and you do the show, it's the best time of your life, you know. Yeah, I agree. Like, if, if, if you tour in style, that, like, touring in style is the greatest, right? <laughs> but, because I've toured in style, you know, once or twice, I've toured in style, and then I've, toured and utter shit and mm. like that's the worst like that like tour like bad tours 
are bad. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, great, great tours. I mean, I like being in the studio. I like making records. Cause that's my thing. But a great tour is like a very cool second. Because a great tour, you get to travel, see the world. You can actually see all the people who appreciate this. I mean, a, a really well-done tour, even if you're just paid okay, like if the tour itself is hassle-free, like meaning no surprises, like there's a very limited amount of surprises. The surprises is the key word. Like you get what you're supposed to get. You Whatever you went in knowing, it's, it's being honored. You know, you're getting along with the people in, that you're touring with. That yeah. should, that's great. Like, as a musician, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, but you if know. it's a bad tour, it's probably the worst experience a musician can have. Yeah. You know, like being far, far away from home without not having a place to go to bed and not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. And yeah. That goes yeah. against your musicianship. To, to your yeah. desire of making music. Yeah, it, it kills. I've done that. I've been stranded in France, jerked by a promoter, you know, where, you know, Al Sheed had to use violence against the promoter to get us our money, you know, and I was right there helping him, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's like you get stuck out there, and if you're in a place where you don't know the language, you're far away from home. Like, like you don't want to go on stage at that point. Like, you can have fans and crowd there, and you don't want to perform because you're not getting paid, or you know, you don't know where you're staying. You're sleeping on somebody's floor, and there's nothing you can do because you're out of your jurisdiction. Like, you can't just turn around and go home. You know, language barrier. You know, so you have to be aware, you have to be aware of that. And I think we, we're both seasoned musicians. We've been doing this 20 plus years and on our own. So, you know, we know that. So like, that's why we're just cautious about, you know, we, we know both sides of what being on the road is, you know, and that's why bands in their twenties tour so much. Cause they don't know. And in my twenties, I used to go out and get on Greyhound buses and go through the South like the Donald Trump South and do shows <laughs> and go from city to city eating Subway sandwiches every day. Like they used to, used to get six, six cent Subways. If you bought 10 of them and you saved the clips, you got one free. And I used to keep those Subway clips in my wallet and I used to eat Subway for lunch and dinner every day. You know, it's like <laughs> traveling on Greyhound buses and, bus left with all my equipment and the promoter had to go track the bus down and I had to hitchhike. I mean, I've been through nightmare shit, which is most of it is in my book, but you know, like when you go through that, when you're a little younger, you can kind of look back on it and laugh and shit. But I mean, I'm 40 years old. If I go through that now, I might not live. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's, that's something, you know, again, it, it depends on the tour. Right. You know. That that makes a lot of sense. You know, how do you guys feel, you know, as as producers and what you guys are doing? Obviously you guys have a ton of respect um from other producers and 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 other um, you know, artists um for what you guys what you guys do. How do you guys feel about if if your music is sampled or artists do want to take some of the do right songs and and rework them or um, rhyme over them and and give it a different a different take. You know, have you guys thought about that and, and your feelings on how how you would take that? Yeah, uh, 
we are okay with it in, in, in the sense of that we know that part of that music is made to um, to be sampled with the possibility, or considering the possibility of, of being sampled. If we are not doing it that easy, you know, because um, we are not. It's not a, in a commodity record for a DJ. It's still music. So, you, so whatever has to do a sample has to work around the music like every any other record. Mm-hmm. So um, all I wanted to be on our property, you know. Yeah. Credit wise, and 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 depending who the artist is. I mean, this music is from the service. It's on the service for everybody in the sense, and, and if, if we get what we, you know, what we work for, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, like Jay, you know, I've 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 loved your your Red Bull um, drummer interview series, and um, you know, I've learned a lot from from reading, um, reading them, and just just paying attention, especially not being. Um, you know, a journalist, of, you know, of music of that era and, and, and you being such an expert, you know, how have your conversations helped you as a musician? Oh, it's immeasurable. Um, I've learned so much about biz- like drumming, as just as a drummer, the craft of drumming. I learned so much from those guys, but also just about life, and about the music business, you know, and, and, and being in bands. Because when I first started doing that column, I was still learning and I was just playing on my own records and I was doing drum break albums. I was trying to be like those guys. Like, I wanted people to sample me. So I used to put out drum break records like Lunch Breaks and Backyard Breaks. And I was just, I wanted to be sampled just like those guys. But then, you know, while I was doing the series, I, st- I, I auditioned and got into another band, and I play in this band with Pablo, uh, the rock band, Lulu Lewis. So I got into some bands. And all of a sudden, their stories about playing in bands started to become more relevant to me. Because now I'm not in my basement trying to make drums for people to sample, like I'm playing with other people. So when they talk about auditioning for whatever band they were in or whoever they play with, you know, that didn't really impact me but then i had to audition to get in the other band i was in like they the drummer that they had one of the drummers the drummer they had was busy he left they auditioned one other guy they didn't like him and i went down there on a friday night at a rehearsal they're like listen we start a residency in two weeks and we don't have a drummer and we only have three rehearsals you have to learn eight new songs eight songs for the show you have to learn the material and we're going to play it every week for a month and I went down and rehearsed thinking like, I'm not going to get it. I'm just doing this for experience. And I got the gig. So then like all of a sudden, you know, when I was down on the gig, I was thinking about what the drummers told me about their rehearsal story. Like uh, Steve Ferrone, he was the drummer at Average White Band. And he wound up being Tom Petty's drummer, Eric Clapton's drummer. He was a studio drummer in the 70s playing on Roberta Flack and Brian Auger. And, I mean, he's just a bad. He plays with everything. And he used to tell me, he told me in an interview, He was. I was just like, listen, I'm about to audition for this band. I'm like, Yo, you're a journeyman. You've played with everybody. He was like, just make everybody happy. 
just play the pocket, play the groove. Don't don't try to show show That's what the I chops tell you got. Yeah, and Pablo Pablo used to tell me that in the beginning. You know, but and but hearing it also and he knows what he's talking about, but then hearing it come from another drummer, he was like, Don't he said usually if a drummer wants to show show off what they can do, it always ends up sounding like shit. Just play just play you know, just play that groove and make sure that the feel and the time is there. Don't worry about being fast. Just worry about having good feel and and making everything solid and listen and listen to everybody in the band. And I, when I went down to the rehearsal, I don't think I played one fill. We rehearsed for two hours. I never did no fills, and I got the gig. And okay. you know, and afterwards, Ben, the leader, was telling me like, "Yeah, man, you can do some of that funky stuff. Don't worry about it." And then I started to sneak it in there. Like when I got permission, I would add it here and there. But I play in two bands, and they both have lead singers. So when you have a singer, you really can't get away with all that shit. You know, like I have songs in the rock band. I'm in this one song where it has a funny rhythm. And Dylan, the lead singer, she looks at me to know when to start. So like, I can't do a fill problem. I'm talking about in the heat. Like I, when I'm doing in the heat, I can't do a fill. <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta stay the, the rhythm of the song is so unorthodox that if I try to do anything slick, it'll throw her off. Yeah. So, exactly. so when we started doing that song, I'm like, this is tricky. She's watching me like a hawk, so she knows when to come in. I can't show the crowd, hey, look at me. Let me twirl a stick. Let me do a fill. <laughs> Let me play something funky. Like, no, just play the song. It, you know, just just play solid time and, and try to, you know, so all the drummers I interviewed said that. <laughs> you know, like yeah. If you want to go the other side, sorry, man. Sorry. Mm. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, that and then, you know, like learning about the nature of bands, you know, like I interviewed the drummer, Greg Webster from Ohio Players. He was the Ohio Players original drummer. He's the only one who's still alive, which is the crazy thing. They all passed away. He's the only one still living. He was the he was the manager and the drummer for the group. They were playing Chitlin Circuit dates. You know, they, they finally got a hit, minor hit record. They were making $700, $1,000, whatever, a night. And then they made a huge record called Funky Worm. Big hit. Been sampled a million times. And he got sick hepatitis and he went into the hospital and he was in the hospital for like two weeks and he would get all the letters from the booking agency like you know all the offers to do shows because he was kind of managing the group and one of the group members came to the hospital and said yeah we voted you out we need a drummer who can sing and you're sick and you're sick right now so he got replaced when he got home there was a letter in his mailbox from the agency the offer went from seven hundred dollars $20,000 while he was in the hospital and now he was no longer in the group. He had to tear it up and throw it away. So wow. like when you, when you, when you hear that kind of a story, <laughs> you know, you realize that you could lose your job at any moment and it may not even be your fault. So every time I rehearse, every time I play, I play like it's the last day I'm going to play. Like whatever it is, whether it's holding a pocket, whether it's being funky, whatever whatever my job is to do, 
I might be tired. I might have a migraine. I might be having a bad day. I know that, you know, I can be replaced. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's how it is in bands. People come and go. So, like, when I every band I'm in, I try to make sure the problem is never me. <laughs> like, no matter what. Like, I get there early. In hip-hop, everybody gets the shit late. Yeah, yeah. Fucking Lauren Hill does a show, and nine hours later, Lauren Hill still ain't there. Like, you can't get away with that shit when you're in a band, especially if you're the drummer, because when you get there, you you have to look at the house kit. And usually the house kit is fucked up. You're usually sharing the, the drums with another drummer who plays and tunes and sets up different than you. So you got to be prepared for these surprises. So whenever we have a gig, I'm there way before everybody. Because I'm like, what am I going to need to be comfortable tonight? You know what I'm saying? Like, I usually drum thrones are really bad. They'll so fuck your back up. So I keep my drum throne in my trunk. I keep my bass drum pedal in my trunk. I keep a bag of sticks. I put moon gel in my bag because the toms might ring out. Like, I just come like I'm going to, so I'm coming like I'm going to war. <laughs> and leave all that shit in my car. I get there early. I have a discussion with the sound man. And I realized that as a drummer, like, you know, all the other people bring their instruments from home. So there's not as many surprises. Like me, I got to use what's in front of me. And, you know, so like hearing all these guys, all their stories and, and, you know, all their experience, like every interview I do, I walk away with something new, whether it's a better way to practice, a better way to record the drums, a better philosophy on playing with a band you know, about uh, music business shit, you know, knowing that you're replaceable, you know, like these, these guys' stories have, have like helped me just become a better musician. You know, like a lot of drummers said, learn how to, you know, learn music, like not just drums, learn music. And now I'm composing stuff with do right. Like I learned how to chords, how to play keyboards. And all that. Like, I'm not a fucking keyboard player, but I can, do it because you know the cool in the gang drummer george brown he gave me like a theory lesson when i was talking to him he told me about cool words he said if you want to retire one day learn how to compose songs don't just be a drummer because when those ascap and bmi checks come in that's your 401k and, and, and coming out of hip-hop all your shit has samples you can't get an old Jay's own record used in a Pepsi commercial. So what you got to do is learn how to compose original music. So when you're 75, you don't got to be working. <laughs> so, yeah. like, this is these are guys who have 40, 50 years of experience. You know, not only as drummers but as musicians, working musicians. So I I, I interview them and I love to do it. But then I'm listening to everything they say. You know. And and that shit has turned my life. Doing that column has fucking turned my life around. <laughs> like, it's so much information, you know. Yeah, I mean, I want to add something. Going back a little bit, what what Jay was saying about auditioning and stuff like that for other people. You know, I want to share a little bit of my story with TomTom, which is a little bit deep. When I get the chance to audition for TomTom, I was a bass player. I was I wasn't a guitar player. Just I accepted the, 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 the possibility just because I couldn't pass it on. Because that kind of thing just happened to you once in a lifetime, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I had three months to I mean, 
at that point, I did play the guitar, you know, because I had my recording studio and I moved around with, but I wasn't a lead guitarist if I go and play a Glastonbury festival. You know what I mean? So this is the way to do right. It's a very do right way to go, you know, think and swing. I basically locked myself for three months with a guitar to become a lead guitar player, you know. And that's probably the same philosophy that I apply every day, every time we have to, you know, do a new project, go forward. You know, yeah. there are things that we don't really know how to do it, but we do it anyway. That's funky. What keeps you inspired creatively, you know, as as uh, Greasy Listening is coming out and you look you look at everything you got going on like what 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 is keeping you inspired and, and keeping you um making new music and and staying um you know working um well i i mean i'm just i'm just inspired by so much like i think also learning a bit more about chords you know like i'm not heady about this shit but learning how to compose like melodies and shit and all the songs that I like, I figure out why I like them. You know, like, oh, you know, that's a, that's in a minor key of this or that. And you, know, you start to do a little bit of music theory, and that gives me ideas beyond the drum. Like, you know, I can always come up with a funk drum thing. But then, like, now that I'm coming up with, like, some melodies, and then Pablo can come in and really lay it down on top of it and bring it to life that's what keeps me motivated and you know i also play jazz with an organ player locally and even playing jazz like i'm picking up things in jazz and bringing them over you know so i play in a rock band a soul band a jazz band and i have a funk band here with do right so like i'm covering so many i'm playing in so many different genres of music but they're they're all teaching me something and everything i'm learning i'm bringing it back to the studio, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I didn't know shit about rock drumming until I started playing with this band, you know, with Pablo's in, you know. So, learn, you know, learning rock and roll, I pick up things. And then playing with a jazz guy, playing straight-ahead jazz, like organ jazz, bebop jazz. Like, we, he lives around the corner. We get together twice a week and play. And I actually got to head over there in a little bit, so I got to send it to him. But, um, you know, like, even playing with him, like, that shit is so far out of my league. But now it's not out of my league. Like, I'm learning how to, like, play swing and shit like that, you know? And then playing, you know, with the other band, I mean, they do more Motown kind of stuff. So you're dealing with all these harmonies. So, like, I may not take any exact thing and use it on a Do-Right record, but I'll take ideas. Like, I'll be inspired by something that I see at a gig or something that we do in a rehearsal or... You know, the, you know the, the the jazz organ player might play a freaky chord that fucks me up, and I'll stop I'll stop playing drums. I'll go over, like, yo, what notes are in that chord? Because jazz, they color the chords real weird. Like, they add shit. They have, like, five keys at once, and then they come up with these funky-ass chords. And I'll just say, what is that? And I'll come home, and I'll build something around that idea. You know, so I think just being exposed to so many kinds of music, not only, you know, I used to do it as a producer. I would sample all these different kinds of genres, but to be a, to be a, a drummer in all these different genres and be around musicians in those genres, 
they all just see me, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and I take that home and incorporate it in everything I do. I don't know if that answers the question, but that I think now that I have the opportunity to play in so many styles of music, it's just opened up the possibilities to me. 